I invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Um, the lectionary texts in the New Testament, they, they creep along at the beginning of the book, and then they get gradually further apart as we go. So we are sequentially into the next set of verses, finishing chapter 1 this day. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. Find it in the New Testament, books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, then 1 Corinthians. Before we come to God's word together, let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, O Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, for we, your servants, are listening. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligent of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To take seriously what the Apostle Paul means when he speaks of the cross of Christ being foolishness, and to really wrestle with what it means that to let those who boast to only boast in the Lord, we need to apply this to a sign, an event, some way to contextualize our understanding of what these words really mean, not just in a distant, ethereal sense, but in a concrete way on how this matters to us here and now and today. I think the two events that are most fitting to understand this text, that we can relate it to, through which we can understand it, are the events of baptism 
and of burial. And as God's providence would have it, these are both things that we have been very familiar with in the last two weeks and in the next two weeks to come as we celebrate another baptism this week. Baptism and burial are reminders of what we believe and how foolish it might seem to the world, and yet that it is our core convictions at the beginning of life and the end of life that give us hope, that give us confidence, and that give us resilience to live as Christ's servants, even when it seems to be nothing but foolishness. I consider the last few funerals that we've had, the last of many, and they have something in common. Thinking of the last four being June Van Campen, Grethel Nijkamp, Joyce Overbeek, and Sherwin Hopp. There are many similar factors, but maybe the one that's most pressing for us to remember today is that as these were expected deaths, these were ones in which we waited alongside bedsides. As we confronted the reality of death in difficult conversations with hospice nurses, as for a few weeks, names were in our prayer corner on our bulletin to remind us to pray for these beloved saints and their families. But the greatest common factor in all of the deaths that we have grieved together as a congregation is that those who died were not perishing. Consider the first verse of our text today. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But we are not perishing, my friends. In fact, this is to use the word perish in a very specific way not to be confused with its homophone parish, as in to refer to the church, that's P-A-R-I-S-H, but to perish, to dwindle away. This is to use that word in the same way that it's used in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And the Apostle Paul uses perishing in the same way when he says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who do not have this hope, who do not have a future. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We have experienced death, but not perishing, as we have celebrated our hope in the resurrection The message of the cross is foolishness. Even to those who may be young and full of life and vigor and strength and wealth and intellect and social graces, they are perishing without this foolish message of the cross of Christ. For there is no symbol, act, or event of higher importance than the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is hard to understand. It's foolish because we're looking for the wrong signs and symbols. And so Paul quotes Isaiah 29, 14 and saying, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. This is written in a period in Isaiah that's speaking of those who maybe serve God with their lips, but not with their hearts, not with their actions, not in ways that reflect God's love to the world. And so with all of this considered, 
Paul has a threefold rhetorical question. Where is the wise person, the teacher of the law, the philosopher of this age? The wise person, of course, being the, the sophist, the wise lecturer, the orator, the, the public speaker who you would pay to have your kids follow around. A wise tutor who perhaps cares more for eloquence than for content. This would be a jab at the Greeks who seek wisdom above all else. But Paul also includes, where is the teacher of the law? Meaning, of the Jews, where are the scribes? Where are those who know the law the best? And where is the philosopher of this age? Referring to those who are champions of debate. Those who seem to have a particular gift and skill at winning arguments and proving their point. In the eyes of the world, there are an abundance of all three of these things. Eloquent speakers, those who understand rules and laws well, and those who relish engaging in debate. But none of those three can truly find their way to being right with God on their own accord. For it takes the foolishness of the cross of Christ to make ourselves right before God. The cross is the center point of revelation, and it is in baptism, the other primary event that we celebrate this, that we remember that in baptism we are united to Christ in his death so that we may share in his life and in his resurrection. Wisdom of this world, the knowledge of law, and the ability to prove your point will not make you right before God without this central revelation of Jesus Christ who died upon the cross for our sins, for our salvation. What I consider to be especially interesting in this text is that Paul describes what might not sound so unfamiliar to us. In verse 22, he writes, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. We identify with these same things. We want signs. We want signs to prove our point. We want episodes and attributes to stack up in such a way that we know what's going on. We want signs, just like the Jews demanded signs to know who Jesus was. And this same desire for signs exists today. Look no further than a conversation with someone who asks, if you want me to believe in God, show him to me. Give me a sign. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But Christ crucified is not the sign that was being sought for, for it's referred to as a stumbling block. They asked for a sign and received the wrong one, not the one that they were looking for, and it became a stumbling block. The Greeks were searching for wisdom, and they found foolishness in the cross of Christ. Consider that the cross of Christ and the, our Lord Jesus who died upon it was not the Messiah that people were expecting or looking for, and he didn't offer the signs that they wanted to see, even if he did provide the signs that they needed to see, to see the people fed, to see the lame walk, to see those who were blind see again, to see restoration of God taking place. But the signs that the Jews wanted was that of the second coming of, of King David, Another warrior, another one who would not say, take up your cross and follow me, but one who would say, take up your sword and let's overthrow. They didn't want one who would say, blessed are the meek. 
but rather, blessed are those who are strong. The cross of Christ was a giving, a self-giving and sacrifice, when the sign that was wanted was a return of power, was a restoration. I know it's kind of funny. Some people have even read the, the period between the Old and New Testament. And Dolores Hopp and I have talked about this. The book of Maccabees, describing all of the, the fighting that happened and the terrible persecution. And there was bitterness and anger and fear. And the cross of Christ, a suffering servant, was not the sign that people wanted. The cross of Christ did not give the message of safety and security that people were looking for, but it gave one of sacrifice. It did not give a reinforcement to love only your own people, but it gave a charge to make disciples of all nations. It did not use examples like the Samaritans, those who were hated and looked down upon, as a way to reinforce that you were primary. But it pushed us to think of even our enemies and those who we despise the most to be the protagonists in our stories, showing their own grace, putting themselves at risk to love their neighbors. The signs that Jesus performed in the teaching he offered was a stumbling block to those who are looking for the wrong kinds of signs. And we, too, so easily may begin to look for the wrong signs. When we want to know that God is present, we might look for the wrong signs. And when we seek wisdom, we too often can find convincing versions of the world's wisdom and look past the foolishness of the cross, which is not the sign or wisdom that we would expect or hope for. signs that we are given, the signs that we celebrate for David today are signs of God's unconditional love and calling. And so we remember that it does take a village to raise a child, and it takes a church to raise a disciple. And we ask Ross and Sarah as parents, and we ask the congregation to essentially take part in being that church that raises disciples What kind of signs will David grow up seeing from this church? And will he grow up in this congregation watching us be people who do justice, who love mercy, and who walk humbly with their God? Will he see the Christ-like example, that foolishness of the cross, exemplified in us in self-giving? of forgiveness being extended even when it is not deserved or asked for? Will we see grace and reconciliation in how we settle our arguments and differences with one another? For this is foolishness to the world, to think that the one who is dying can bring life, that a condemned criminal can be the Messiah. Sometimes we look for the wrong signs and the wrong wisdom. But in reading scripture, we are given all of the clues that we need on what signs to look for. The wisdom of the world has not led people to make themselves right with God. It takes the cross to do that. But this is for all who have been called. And so the Apostle Paul, in the last part of chapter 1, reminds us that when we were called, 
we were not wise or influential or of noble birth. It is not by our credentials that we receive the promises of God, but rather it is the meek and the suffering and the lowly who receive God's love and calling. The church in Corinth was made up of slaves and a few influential people. We, too, also remember that it is not from our merits or what we have done that we receive God's grace and mercy and promises. And so, it's a good thing for David to remember today, too, as years go by and you and Sarah tell him the story, and that he won't think that he was called because of his good looks or his intelligence, all the things which he will have. He'll get his intelligence from his mother, Genetic, we're talking genetically, mitochondrial DNA to the brain, right? He'll get, he'll get all of his technical acumen from you, Ross. We learn through the signs and wisdom of those around us. But it is not for our external credentials that God's call is given to us. It's not the signs of how we prove ourselves, but it is the cross of Christ that proved to us God's love for us. The world needs to see more of those signs of self-giving and of love and of sacrifice and of humility. I think it's no coincidence that this week the Old Testament lectionary text was Micah chapter 6. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. For there is no room for arrogance or entitlement when we come before the cross of Christ. Let all who boast boast in the Lord, and only him. Tremper Longman III, which is quite a name, Tremper Longman III is a New Testament scholar, and one of the things that he tells us about this passage in particular is that the only one who can take credit for our salvation is Jesus Christ, because he did all the work. To receive a free gift when someone else did all the work might go against our grain a little bit, but it reminds us that the cross of Christ and the salvation freely offered is a gift that is not deserved or earned, but nor is it one that we are entitled to. We did not deserve or earn God's grace, yet it was given to us, but also we are not entitled to it. For entitlement breeds lack of appreciation, but rather we celebrate what Christ has done for us. From baptism to burial, we remember that we are Christ's, that we are the Lord's. So hopefully, as David grows up, he will boast. He will boast in the right things, that he will boast in the Lord. That is, C.S. Lewis once instructed that when people ask if you are a Christian, it should not be a nonchalant response in which we say, why, yes, in fact, I am but rather there should be some mystery and surprise of that simple fact that, yes, and isn't that amazing that God called even me to be one of his disciples? Are you a Christian? There should be surprise and wonder for this undeserved yet not entitled gift that has been given to us. And we might find it in the most unlikely places in the signs and wisdom that we are not looking for, but the ones that have been provided for us. Now, far be it from me to go through a sermon without making some slightly nerdy reference. And so today we've got to go right for the heart of it, that epochs of television known as Star Trek The Next Generation. 
And within that series, Captain Jean-Luc Picard of the Enterprise, Enterprise D, will will you remember, is sending young Ensign William Crusher off to the academy. And Picard takes Ensign Crusher aside and tells him, when you get to the academy, I need you to find Grotsky, because if you make friends with Grotsky, he will be a good friend to you. He helped me in the academy more than anyone else. And this is said by a well-respected captain. Go to the academy, Ensign Crusher, and find this man. And Ensign Crusher, who is brilliant in mind and intellect, he would fit right alongside of the Greeks and the sophists and the great philosophers, says, I I can't think of who that is. I haven't read his dissertation. What is he a professor of? And Captain Picard replies, he's not a professor. He's the groundskeeper. There's a mystery that the show holds because later on we hear that Ensign Crusher did get to know Grotsky, the groundkeeper, and we're not even told why this Grotsky character is so influential or helpful. But we do know that in him, wisdom was found and help was found, even if it would be foolishness in the world to seek out the groundskeeper as your most helpful ally. Now, I know you all want to go home and watch more late 80s, early 90s television. And I know I do as well. So we'll wrap this up. Therefore, it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. North Holland, let's be cautious of our pride. Let's watch the ways in which we celebrate. Let's be mindful that our boasting and that our self-worth and that our identity and the things which we celebrate the most in this life are Christ and him crucified and to be ever mindful of when we cross the line into looking for the wrong signs or when we buy into the wrong wisdom. For it is Christ and Christ alone in whom we boast with great surprise and wonder that the gift of God's grace has been given even to us. And that this grace was not meant to be held onto or hogged by us, but to be shared. To share with the whole world. For each one of us has been created in the image of God. From the unborn child to the baptized child to the Syrian refugee, we are created in God's image. Therefore, we have been called to share the good news, to relieve the oppressed, and to offer the signs and wisdom of the cross to the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. God, in your word, you remind us that it wasn't the wisdom by human standards or our influence or our noble birth that made us worthy to be your children, but you made us worthy by your love, by your grace, and by your simple calling of us, that you might be our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, Lord, we boast in you and in you alone. And we worship you as a response for what you have done for us. But we love you simply because of who you are. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.